You know, as a, as a Tennessee boy, you know, I have to say that Tennessee is God's country. It's like it's the law. I have to say that. But Georgia is a beautiful state. Georgia is a beautiful state. And God has truly blessed us. It's been so illustrated with so much beauty. You know, Tennessee has pretty much all that stuff except the beach. And my daughter reminds me of that. Tennessee's great, but Georgia's got a beach. So, yes, we're thankful for that. You know, last week I began this series on the opening chapters of Genesis by looking at what uh, the opening chapters of the Bible, by looking at what the message of Genesis 1 is. What is it saying to us? And we talked about some of the fierce debates and frequent disagreements these chapters elicit, both from Christians and non-Christians. And, and it's amazing when you look at that, how such a simple, chronological, brief account of how the universe came into being can cause such an array of complicated, expansive explanations of, quote-unquote, what really happened. There are those who say the creation account in Genesis is nothing more than a pre-scientific explanation of our origin, that it's just another myth among all the many myths in the world. And atheists and skeptics use the scientific method to try and explain what no one was present to witness. And nobody was there. And creation is something that cannot be observed and it cannot be recreated or repeated or tested in a laboratory. As I said last week, all they can offer are theories based on not just factual data, that's what they'll try to make you think, but also on gross assumptions and godless worldviews. We talked about those who with good intentions try to reconcile the biblical account of how the world came into being with the modern scientific theories. From young earth creationists who believe the world is only a few thousand years old to evolutionary creationists who believe the universe is billions of years old, their interpretations of science and Scripture tend to yield just more exclusive points of view, leaving people like us to wonder what theory best explains the evidence we see in our world and the truth we read in the Bible. What was God's purpose and message when he revealed this historical account to Moses for the benefit of Israel and for our benefit today. What was that message? And so we talked about that last week. And we looked at how these fascinating arguments that are made by very well-meaning Christians with different views can leave us confused. But there's one thing that we must all agree on. And that is that God is the creator of everything. And He created a good, orderly, purposeful universe. And that includes you and me. And all the things that were made were made by, for, through, and to Jesus Christ for His pleasure, His purpose, and His glory. The message of Genesis is not a scientific message. It's better than that. It's greater than that. It's higher and deeper than that. Yes, it's factually true. But its purpose isn't to assuage our curiosity or give us ammo for our arguments about something that no one witnessed aside from God and the heavenly host. We only know what God has chosen to reveal to us in His Word for the purpose of teaching us the truth about God, ourselves, and the world. That's the message of Genesis 1. So today I want us to kind of dig in deeper on that first thing that Genesis 1 is meant to teach us about, and that is God. What does creation and what does Genesis 1 reveal to us about God? And in keeping with 
The seven days of creation, there are seven things I want us to look at this morning. So let's jump into it. The first is that God is. God is. It says in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. Full stop. In the beginning, God. Right here in the first sentence, we're told who this book is all about. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about Israel. It's not about the church. It's not about Abraham, Moses, or David. Right here we learn in these first words, the Bible is all about God. And the Hebrew word that's used for God here is found 35 times in these 31 verses. It's the, it's the word Elohim. And that should remind us the fact that there are more occurrences of God's name than there are verses in this chapter tells us that He is the source of all things. He is the great actor in history from the very beginning. In his commentary on Genesis Dr. Stuart Briscoe said this, This chapter should be read primarily as a revelation of the God of creation rather than a statement about that which God created. While it raises many unanswered questions about how He created, it provides many answers to questions about who did the creating. And that's what we're looking at this morning. Who is this God that created the universe? One of the hallmarks of any worldview is how it answers the question, what is the nature of ultimate reality? What is prime reality? In other words, what is really real? In all worldviews, and a worldview is simply how you view the world. It's the lens through which you interpret your life, the world, everything around you. So this includes all philosophies, all religions, they're all worldviews. And all worldviews will answer that question about what is really real, what is prime reality in one of three ways. Either God gods, some sort of divine beings or presence in, in the universe, or the material cosmos itself. That what you see, what you can touch, touch, taste, feel, that is what is really real. This is the most fundamental element of your worldview because it sets the boundaries for how you answer all the other questions, like what is the nature of external reality? Is it created or is it self-existing? Is external reality chaotic or is it orderly? Is it primarily material or spiritual? Who is in charge? God? People? The forces of nature? Now, biblical worldview begins right here in Genesis 1-1 with God. Now, an atheistic, naturalistic worldview begins with an impersonal, accidental universe. That's where they start. Remember when God revealed His name to Moses at the burning bush. What did God say His name was? I am. I am that I am. We pronounce it as Yahweh. I am. God's name is the present tense form of the verb to be. God's essential nature is that God is. He's not God will be. He's not some just future thing that we hope for, that we hope might be true. He isn't God was, some irrelevant thing from the past, yesterday's news. He is the God who is. And as such, He always has been and He always will be because He always is. He is the God who is outside of time. Therefore, He's the only one who could create time in the beginning God. The second thing we see in this chapter is that God is the creator, the eternal creator of everything. In the beginning, God created. 
the heavens and the earth. Now, we looked last week at that expression, the heavens and the earth, basically means everything. Everything that ever was, is, or will be, God created it all. And God created the everything from nothing. Ex nihilo. God created everything there is from nothingness. Hebrews 11.3 puts it this way. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was made from what is unseen. Now one of the driving questions to science today is where did we come from? Where did the universe, where did the earth, where did human life, where did we all come from? And it's crazy when you think about all the time, resources, energy, and billions upon billions of dollars that we have spent through NASA and institutions and universities to answer that question that you can spend a few bucks for or even go online for free, look at Genesis 1-1 and find the answer. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's right there. Now, I understand that science's job is to question and postulate and test theories. I get that, and I'm thankful for science. I'm thankful for the scientific method because without it, we wouldn't enjoy so many of the comforts we have today, like the heating that's keeping us nice and toasty in here. Some of you probably think you're not so toasty, but I'm getting hot up here already. You know, I was talking to somebody this morning about the miracles of modern science. And, and, and modern medicine that, that, that allows us to, to diagnose and, and treat and cure diseases and illnesses and to save lives. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for all the technologies that allow us to communicate with people around the world instantly, that allow us to travel uh, around the world in hours rather than in months. I'm grateful for all of this. That science has contributed to the filling and forming of the world, to human flourishing and creativity, but the answer to some questions like where did we come from and what is the meaning of life are not best answered by science. That's the wrong tool. That's not what science should be used to answer. And so atheists are at a total disadvantage to answer these questions because the universe cannot explain its own existence. And the reason is because the universe is not ultimate reality. God is. He is ultimate reality. Atheists struggle with this. They struggle to understand or believe in the idea of something that is eternal. You know, the opening line of Genesis is, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but the opening line of Carl Sagan's cosmos is, the cosmos is all there is or has been or will be. You know what? That's not a scientific statement. That's a faith statement. That is his statement of his faith. And those who think like Carl Sagan, those who are materialistic, atheistic, humanists, their God is the universe. Their God is matter. They're not all that different from the pantheism of Eastern religions or of ancient uh, cultures. The assertion in Genesis is that nothing existed before God spoke it into existence. And that is in stark contrast to those kind of pantheistic, polytheistic cultures that are still around today and, and really were all around the area in which the children of Israel lived. For us today, it counters those arguments of philosophical materialism and secular humanism that hold that only what you can hold and, 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 and test and, and, and touch, only that is what is real. That worldview has captured modern science for more than a century. And those who try to protect it will defend it against all reason and logic because it's not a scientific statement, it's a faith statement. Genesis stands opposed 
to those beliefs. God is, and He is infinite, and He is eternal. He has no beginning to discover or explain. He is the source of everything that is. Logically speaking, God is necessary for us to understand reality, the universe, and how it all came to be and where it's all going. God is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. He is the eternal creator of all things. Thirdly, we learn in this chapter that God is also distinct. He is separate from His creation. Let's go back to some of that pantheism I mentioned. A lot of these pagan religions in Israel's day uh, believe that that everything that is uh, in nature is divine. And we see this today in Eastern religions, in the New Age movement, uh, in, in Wicca, uh, this idea of Mother Earth, that the world, nature itself, Mother Nature, is, is some kind of a divine being. That term pantheism means that God is one with nature. Now, the opposite of that, but, but has a similar belief, is called monism. And that believes that there is only one being, that God is everything and everything is God. So it's a fine distinction, but they both make the same error, that God and creation are one. That God is in His creation. Creation is part of God. Genesis definitively tells us, right there in verse 1, that God is not the same as the universe He made. In the beginning, God, and then God, created the heavens and the earth. God is not nature. Nature is not God. He is separate and distinct from the world He has made. Now, if you look with me here in Genesis 1, we're going to see an example of this that would have really been a lot more apparent to the Israelites who have just left four centuries of living among the Egyptians. Remember the Egyptians worshipped, you know, there's Ra, the god of the sun, there's the god of the moon, the god of the stars, the god of the Nile, the god of, of, of agriculture. Everything in nature had a god. But if you look at Genesis 1, verse 3, what does God make on the first day? Light. Let there be light. Okay? Where is that light coming from? From God. Because guess what's made on the fourth day, three days later? The sun, moon, stars, and and planets. Now this would have been a slap in the face to these people at this time who were worshiping the sun, moon, and stars. God is saying, yeah, these, these gods, the sun, the moon that you worship, you know, I created light, not them. And in fact, light existed three days before I even made these guys. Genesis gives no divine or special status to the heavenly bodies. They are simply what God puts in the sky. He says to rule the day and the night and to give us the seasons and to mark time. They are not divine. God is separate from His creation. Creation doesn't emanate from God either. There are some who believe that nature is just like an emanation of God. Listen, matter, the universe, is made from nothing, not from God. God simply spoke the Word and they came into being. So the universe, the earth, you and me, we are not some sort of extension of God's being. God is separate and distinct He is holy, that's what that word holy means, separate from you and me and all of creation. Nor is God some nondescript, impersonal life force or life energy. He is more than just the first cause that started the process of creation. He's more than the moral center of reality. God is a person. And as such, God is a relational being. 
that longs to know and love you and me. And that, that brings us to the next thing that Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and really the rest of the Bible teaches us is that God is relational. So just as Genesis 1 dashes pantheism and polytheism, it also dashes deism. Now, deism had its heyday back at 250 years ago around the founding of the country. A lot of the founders of, of, uh, of America were deists. And the deists basically believed that God was like a clockmaker. And he made the clock and he wound it up and he set that pendulum to swinging and he walked away and left it to do its thing. So atheists deny the existence of God. But deists are like agnostics. They just deny the involvement of God. Yeah, there's a God, there's a creator of the universe, there's an intelligent designer, but once he got everything going, he walked away. You can't know him. He's not listening to your prayers. He's not going to have any kind of relationship with you. The Bible describes a God who not only was intimately involved in the creation of his world, he is still personally involved in sustaining it and directing it toward his purposes and glory. God is relational, meaning He is involved in this world. He is involved in our lives. Hebrews 1.3 puts it this way. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of His nature, sustaining all things by His powerful words. Not only does God create the universe by His word, He sustains it by His word. Paul put it this way in Colossians 1.17. He said that Jesus created all things and He holds all things together. Or in his sermon on Mars Hill in Acts 17, 28, he says, For in him we live and move and have our being. God was and is personally involved in the world and in the lives of the people that he crafted in his image. If you look at the text of Genesis 1-3 through and you break it down percentage-wise, like what each verse is about, the vast majority of Genesis 1-3 through is about God's relationship with people. It's about God relating to us. This tells us that God is a personally relational God. He created people to be in relationship with Him and with each other. Now, the essence of this personhood and this relational nature of God is family. God in three, in three persons, blessed Trinity. This doctrine of the Trinity is all about this. And, and it's, it's, it's a difficult concept for us to understand to wrap our minds around to understand that. But we see the foundation for this doctrine right here in Genesis 1. Remember that, that word for God I mentioned, Elohim? All right. The, thing, the interesting thing about that word is it's plural. It's a plural word. It's a plural noun. Anytime you see im on the end of a Hebrew word like cherubim, seraphim, it means it's plural. Elohim. Now, why would the word for God in Hebrew be plural when Jews and Christians are fiercely monotheistic? The testimony of Scripture, in fact, what we heard even this morning in our Old Testament reading, is there is only one Lord God. Deuteronomy 6.4, the Jewish Shema says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is... One. What are the first two of the Ten Commandments about? There's only one God. Have no other gods before me. Don't bow, don't make graven images or bow down to, to idols. So why is the Hebrew word for God a plural noun? Now here's what's even more remarkable. In Genesis 1.1, the Hebrew word for the verb created is singular. Now if you if you you know paid attention in English class, maybe you did, maybe you didn't. 
the tense, the number of your verb and your noun have to agree. Okay? So we would say, David eats lunch, not David eat lunch. You would say, they eat lunch, not they eats lunch. Right? Your, your subject, your, your, your verb, I mean your noun and your verb, the action, they have to agree. That same rule is true in Hebrew, but not here. Why is that? You've got this plural noun and a singular verb. Well, Jews can't really explain this. Rabbis have tried to debate this and, and, and talk about this. But the truth is, God is the great three in one. And again, that's a hard concept for us to wrap our minds around, but it is essential for Christian faith. And it's a truth that we find right here, not only in this inexplicable pairing of a plural noun for God and a singular verb for create, but it's also found on down in verses 26 and 27 when God creates people. Look what it says. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Who is God talking to? Now, some people will say that, you know, it's sort of like the royal we, you know, that, that, that royalty will, you know, kind of speak of themselves in the, in, the, in the plural. That's not true in Hebrew. And that's not the way that the, that the Hebrew people wrote about or thought about God. So that's not accurate. Others want to say that God is speaking to the heavenly host. He's talking to the angels. But the problem with that is the angels are also created beings. And the angels are not equal with God. We're not made in the image of the angels. We're made in the image of God. No, this is God speaking to Himself, to the eternal community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. Now, the Baptist faith and message defines the Trinity like this. The eternal triune God reveals Himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes but without division of nature, essence, or being. The Trinity... Now, we see this also uh, in verses 1 through 3. Look back at verses 1 through 3. We see each of these three persons of the Godhead at work in creation. We see in the beginning God. God the Father orchestrates and initiates creation by His will. It was His idea. The Spirit, in verse 2, it says, The earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. The Spirit of God is hovering now, the, the Hebrew word there is the same you would use of a mother bird who is hovering over her nest, flapping her wings as her chicks are hatched. The Spirit of God is present, is overseeing, is fostering and nurturing the creation of the world. And then we know from throughout the chapter, the active agent of God's creative work is His Word. He speaks and things come into being. Now, if you remember from John 1, 1 through 5, the Word is is how John describes the eternal preexistent Son of God, Jesus. He says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him not one thing was created that has been created. John is intentionally pointing us back to Genesis 1. Jesus is the Word who spoke, who brought creation into existence. So we see in creation all three persons of the Trinity at work. He said, David, what does this matter? How does this impact my life? This is why God made us. 
It's why He created us in His image to fill His good world out of God's nature as an eternally relational being in eternal community with Himself. God created beings who could also be in community with Him and with each other. He made us to know, love, worship, and fellowship with Him. He made us to be in community and relationship with one another. And we're going to look more at this in the next two sermons as we focus on people, on how God made us. But we see that ours is a God of fellowship, of community, of relationship, of love. Look at what John wrote in his first epistle, 1 John 4. He said, The one who does not love does not know God because why? God is love. And he says, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent His one and only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in Him. Love is relational. Love requires one who gives the love, and you have to have somebody who receives the love. It's reciprocal. And this is why God made us in His image. It's why God created us male and female. He created us to not only love and be loved by Him, but to love and be loved by one another. And He made us with the ability to create more human beings, to foster families, to create communities and cultures and nations, because our God is a relational God. Another thing we learn in this chapter, and we've touched on this already a little bit, but God created by His Word. And we looked at what that means as far as the third person of the Trinity, Jesus, the eternal Word of God. But the idea that God spoke creation into existence, He spoke time and space, energy and matter into being, has great implications for us. The, the Greek word that John uses in John 1, logos, is the Greek word that means word, like the spoken word. But it also means reckoning. Reason, cause, motive. It's the basis for our word logic. Logos is where we get the word logic from. So Genesis and John are telling us that there was a mind behind creation. John Lennox is an Irish professor and a world-renowned bioethicist and Christian apologist. In one of his books, it's a short little book, it's an easy read. It's one of the books I've read in preparation for this series. It's called Seven Days That Divide the World. And he points this out. He says, The idea that the universe did not come into being without the input of information and energy from an intelligent source seems to me to have been amply confirmed by scientific discovery. And he goes on to talk about the language of mathematics, the miracle of math. Now, boys and girls, I know again, you're thinking, yeah, some miracle. God can keep that one. But math is amazing that we have math. That there are immutable laws of nature. The genetic code. All of these things point to the greater word that is ultimately responsible for the fabric of our reality. You see, atheistic scientists cannot explain why the laws of nature exist. And why the physical laws of the universe are constant and immutable. Maybe you remember on Star Trek, what would Scotty always tell Captain Kirk? Captain Kirk wanted him to do something impossible, and he would say, you cannot change the laws of physics. You can't change the laws of physics. Why is that? Consider the information in our DNA, that amazing double helix of genetic information. Where did that come from? Who programmed that information in there? 
Lennox explains how information has actually come to be regarded as one of the fundamental concepts of science. A lot of science is now focused on this information that exists in the universe. But what's fascinating is when you think about it, information, is that physical? Is information material? No, it's not. Information is non-physical. All right, so think about the words you're hearing from me right now. Okay? Uh, my lungs fill up with air, my vocal cords, my, my nasal cavity, they resonate these sounds. My tongue, my lips and teeth form these sounds that travel as energy waves through the air to your ear. Where it vibrates that eardrum and those bones and the little hairs inside your inner ear and it, your ear translates that into electrical impulses to your brain. That then hopefully is interpreting what I'm saying as something that makes sense and is interesting. <laughs> I hope. That's all physical. But the information itself, the thoughts and ideas, are not material. They don't exist in any tangible way. They only exist in our minds. That's amazing. And Lennox argues that the non-materiality of information points to a non-material source, a mind, the mind, the mind of God, the Logos. Human consciousness is one of the greatest mysteries of science and philosophy. Where does it come from? The fact that you and I can think and reason and, and we're self-aware, where does that come from? How does it exist independently of thoughts and brains and senses? And it does. And what happens to our consciousness after physical death? What is a, here, listen to me, what is a mystery to science is a truth of Scripture. It's a truth of Scripture. God spoke creation into existence by His eternal Logos. Creation existed first in God's mind, then He spoke it into existence, infusing material creation with non-material information. And the greatest example of that is your mind and mine. That we can observe and study and consider and understand and explain anything about God's world is amazing. And it's because God spoke his creation into existence. Number six, we learn that God's creation reflects His goodness. Now, we looked last week at the idea of God's good creation. We talked about the Hebrew phrase, meod tov, that means very good. It means that God created a world that is powerfully pleasant, abundantly desirable, exceedingly beautiful, perfectly suited. But God's very good world is a reflection that He is a very good God. James 1.17 tells us that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. God only give, gives good gifts and God could only create a good world because God's inherent nature is one of goodness. In fact, the only reason you and I know that anything is good is because God is good. If something is good, it means it's a reflection of God's character and how God made the world to be. That's why James compares him to the stars in the heaven. He calls him the, the Father of heavenly lights that he does not change. Now, from our perspective, you look at the stars in the sky, they don't change. Those constellations, those stars, Polaris, all, they've been where they are for all of recorded history. And for centuries and centuries, sailors have charted those courses and have been able to sail around the world by those stars. 
The reason for that is because God made a good and orderly world. But what James is saying is that as unchanging as those stars seem to be to us, God is even more unchanging. He is even more constant. He is, he's not like shifting shadows. He is good. Jesus tells us that He is the good shepherd. We worship a good God. And finally, I want to briefly touch on one of those good gifts that God gave us. Now, I'm going to do a whole sermon about this down the road. But God gave us a day of rest. So the final thing that we read in this passage is God created the Sabbath. Now look with me at Genesis 2, 1 through 3. You know, the, the chapter and verses in your Bible were not original. They were put in there centuries later by, by well-meaning people. And I'm thankful for it because it makes it a whole lot easier to tell you, hey, I'm going to read from this, turn to this in your Bible, right? Without that, we'd all just kind of be lost. So I'm, I'm grateful for that little mapping system that's in there. But I think it's unfortunate that whoever it was that made this decision ended chapter 1 with verse 31 and included 2, 1 through 3 as a part of chapter 2 because really those first three verses are part of the previous narrative. So if you're reading Genesis 1, you really need to read it all the way through 2, 3. So let's look at what it says. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed His work that He had done and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it He rested from all of His work of creation. This was God's final act in the creation week. The last thing God created wasn't you and me. The last thing God created was the Sabbath day. Okay? He, he made that just as He made the stars in the sky. So it's interesting. The last thing God creates, again, isn't something material. It isn't something physical. It's an understanding of time. It's a setting apart of a certain day of the week. Now, God didn't wear Himself out in creation. He didn't work so hard those six days that He got to the seventh day and said, Whoo, I've got to sit down and take a break. Again, we heard in Old Testament reading that God doesn't grow weary. God doesn't get tired. The Bible tells us He neither slumbers nor sleeps. And Jesus said, My Father is always at work. So what does this mean that God created the Sabbath day and rested on it? The Sabbath day, the seventh day, the day of rest wasn't made for God. It was made by God for us. Just as He made the air that we breathe and the water we drink for us, He made the Sabbath day for us. Jesus said as much in Mark 2.27. He said, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a gift for us to protect us from ourselves, to force us to slow down, to sit down, to be still and quiet, to focus on God as the giver of our daily bread. Or as one Jewish rabbi explained, he said, it is a day that sets a limit to our intervention in nature and to our economic activity. We become conscious of being creations, not creators. The earth is not ours, but God's. The Sabbath is a weekly reminder of the integrity of nature and the boundaries of human striving. Now listen, in this world in which we live with artificial intelligence, with genetic engineering, with human attempts to control the climate, where we're bombarded daily in the media with messages that tell us that we can shape our identity and our bodies to suit whatever whim we have today, in a world like that, we need this reminder. We need boundaries to honor nature's integrity, to honor the givenness of this world and our bodies, and to remember what Psalm 24, 1 and 2 tells us, the earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, 
belong to the Lord. For He laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. This is what Genesis 1 teaches us about God. Now there's so much more the Bible teaches us about God, but this is what God said. This is fundamental. This is foundational. In the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, this is what I want you to know about me. That He is eternal. He is holy. He is set apart and distinct from His creation. That He is personal and relational and good. That God is the mastermind behind everything that is. He's the source of all truth. He's the author of our faith. He's the architect of our lives. He's the giver of every good gift. And in Him we find our rest, our value and worth, our identity and our purpose. That's what Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 teaches us about God. And my prayer for you this morning is you know God. This God of creation, this God of the Bible, I pray you know Him personally, that you have a relationship with Him. And listen, that's only possible through His Son, Jesus Christ, that eternal Logos that created you and sustains you. He came down. The Creator became part of His creation to die on a cross to redeem you from sin and death, to renew you, to restore you to a right relationship with the Father. And that same Spirit who hovered over the surface of the watery depths can come and live within you and dwell within you and give you wisdom and peace to reveal the very mind of God to you, to give you purpose and power. This is what Jesus came to do. And my prayer is that if you don't know Jesus Christ, you would come today and receive Him. Come to Him. Give Him your sin. Give Him your failures. Give Him your weakness. Give Him your insecurity. Let Jesus come and dwell within you. Let the Spirit hover over the watery chaos of your life and birth something new in you. He wants to make you into a new creation if you'll let Him. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, if you have any questions about where you stand with Him, as we sing in just a moment, I invite you to come. And I'd be glad to help you know that you belong to Jesus. And maybe God is speaking something else into your life today. Maybe you just want to worship God. I mean, I read this chapter, I think about these things, it just draws me to worship our Lord. Amen? I mean, just to give, as Ben was pointing out, we look at the creation He has made and it fills us with wonder and amazement. It, it puts us in the right perspective that He's God and we're not. We, we, you look at those starry skies, it makes you feel small. But then when you look at the cross of Christ, it makes you feel big. Because the God who made all of this made you. And He sees you, and He knows you, and He loves you, and He came to redeem you. Do you know Him today? Maybe you know somebody who's lost, somebody that doesn't know Jesus, and maybe God's been burdening your heart with them, but you've been afraid, you've been timid, and you've not been going to them to share the good news of Jesus, to share this amazing truth with them. I pray that you will. I pray that God will give you boldness and opportunity to take His Word and to make an eternal difference in somebody's life. Maybe God is calling you and your family to unite with this community, to come into relationship with this people here as a member of this body, to worship and serve Him here. Whatever the Spirit of God, that Spirit that helped to bring creation about, what is He working to bring about in your life? Would you listen to Him and respond accordingly? Would you stand and pray with me? Father, we are so thankful for Your creation. We're so thankful for all that You brought about and, and how You have revealed it to us, what we can see with our own eyes, what we can experience with our own senses. But God, especially what You have revealed to us in Your Word. God, the truths that are there about who we are made in Your image, people that You love, people that You value. 
God, may that drive us to love and value each other. Father, we're thankful that you created a good world, an orderly world, God, that speaks to your order, your goodness. Father, we're thankful for the information you spoke into this world that makes it possible for us to invent and create things and and solve problems and help better people's lives. God, may everything we do, may the work of our hands always be for your glory and to fulfill your purposes. God, whatever you're speaking to us today and whatever you're calling us to do as we leave this place, may we be obedient to your Spirit's prompts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.